any cursory reading of history, particularly recent history, would lead us all to conclude that we are living through seismic cultural change. We have found ourselves in this moment in human history where everything is changing and everything is changing quicker than ever and it feels volatile and confusing and disorientating. Perhaps not even just the last 50 years, maybe only the last 20 years, we have shifted significantly from what is known as modernity into what's called post-modernity. We've talked about that before. Sociologists, theologians, historians talk now about the secular age, the post-secular society. And a book I was reading this week as I prepared for this, now talking about the meta-modern narrative, this new way of thinking about what it is to be human that is coming as we grapple with a world that we didn't predict 20 years ago. We live in this hyper-connected global society where we are the one hand connected so well to people on the other side of the world, but also very, very immediate. And with that comes a collision of worldviews. And with a collision of worldviews comes a whole set of assumptions and differences of opinion and blind spots and agendas and fears and disagreements, all in this mix as we try to work out what on earth is going on. And that is all before you chuck in a global pandemic, right? Now, there are a mix of drivers for this. Some of it is the technological advances that we looked at last week. Some of it is science driving agendas forward. Some of it is new philosophy, new ethical frameworks, fresh ways of reading society. And a lot of it is a reaction to history and to what has gone before. We intuitively know this. We live in this world, and that has implications for us. It has implications for how we derive meaning and purpose, and crucially, identity as humans. All of this plays out in our political sphere, in economics, in education. We live in a moment, don't we, where there are some massive topics all in play, all up for discussion, all causing us to think and rethink these things. Racial justice, gender equality, violence to the poor, the climate emergency, and human sexuality. We've worked on a number of those over the years as we've gone. We haven't until recently looked at human sexuality and more of that in a moment. As you are well aware, these things create debate and division and disagreement, both within society and therefore inevitably within the church. All of this can make it super difficult for us to talk to one another, particularly when we don't agree. And we can get quite adept as humans at kind of avoiding the issue, particularly us English. And eventually what happens is we run out of road down which to kick the can because something triggers something and we have to go there. And I think as the people of God, we are called always to engage with these big issues in a healthy, undefended and wise way, guided by the scriptures and the Holy Spirit both for us, so that we can live as God is calling us to, but also so that we can be the kind of community that bears witness in the world to his love and grace. 
Just as a heads up, and we've given you a heads up on the heads up, but already earlier in the year, but in a moment I'm going to introduce how the Church of England is going to be intentionally exploring questions of human sexuality and how we as the people of all saints will be engaging with this as a local church both because we want to and both because it's right and good that we should as an Anglican uh, church. Now, to be clear, the aim today is not to start that conversation. It's simply to flag with you it is coming and this is what it will look like and to try to frame from the scriptures how it is that we're going to have that conversation. But first, let us head to Philippi now in Greece, but at the time, a well-established Roman colony. It was the first church plant that Paul did. It was a, a, a cosmopolitan city at the time. And in that context, a whole load of competing worldviews were there. People of Greco-Roman origin, Jewish people, all sorts of other uh, nations represented. And therefore, you had this collision of worldviews playing out in the mix of, of that place. We don't know exactly because Paul's not clear in the scriptures, but there, are see, there seems to have been some disagreement among the church, some division as a result, and Paul writes this letter, and part of what he's doing is addressing that. And so we have in chapter 2 this exquisite uh, invitation and instruction from him and to seek unity, to seek unity, and here in, in that passage also uh, how to do it. It's important that you and I understand that as the people of God, we are called to live in the intersection of two competing stories, two meta-narratives that shape and form and influence what it is to be society in any given moment in history. We live in the intersection between the Western story and the biblical story. There are points where they come together beautifully, but there are also points where they are in conflict and tension. And we, each generation of us in the church, has to do the hard work together, I would argue, of working out how they should inform one another. What should inform which way round? It's difficult, but that is part of our work. And it is all too easy, therefore, as we attempt to do that, for us as the people of God to become divided in the process, to split over things. And you know you know local church history, you know enough of church history to know that Christians are spectacularly bad at this. And that is something we need to be really aware of. Part of that is that you and I naturally, on things that matter to us, we come to conclusions, we develop convictions, and they often seem quite black and white to us. But the reality is our black and white is different to someone else's black and white. And in reality, we all know this, don't we? Life's actually a lot more gray. And you and I, as the people of God, we need to have grace for the gray. We have to have grace for the gray. We are all works in progress, and none of us see in full. Paul himself says, I only see in part. Now, in this passage, I think Paul gives us very, very clear teaching on what it means to be a church that engages with its cultural context and all the big questions it's asking and posing without becoming divided as a result. The key is verse 2. Paul says this, essentially. Be of one mind. 
be of one mind. Notice this. Make my joy complete, he says, by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. He says the same when he writes to the church in Corinth in chapter 1 of his first letter to them. Verse 10, I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, to live in harmony with each other. Let there be no divisions, he says, in the church. Rather be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. And notice that Peter says the same in one of his letters, 1 Peter 3. Finally, all of you, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Paul is not saying here that we should all agree with each other on everything. A, that's impossible, and B, that would be really dull. Version, uh, sorry, verse 2 is better translated, set your minds on the same thing. Set your minds on the same thing. Paul is saying we are to have the same disposition towards something, a shared way of looking at things, what he calls the mindset of Christ in verse 5, which he then goes on to unpack in the rest of the passage. This is about unity of purpose and disposition. Unity with regard to the gospel and our common call to usher in the kingdom of God. Paul is really clear. Unity comes from having the same mindset and disposition of Jesus, not from all agreeing on everything. The goal is not uniformity of opinion, as much as actually we might really like that. It's about sharing in God's love together in such a way that we can unite around Jesus, put others before ourselves, even when we profoundly disagree with one another over things that really matter to us. We'll come back to how we do that in just a moment. But with all this in mind, let's look briefly together today at how the Church of England, the beautiful, wonderful, complicated Church of England of which we are a part, is seeking to help us grapple together with questions of human sexuality. The process is known as something called Living in Love and Faith. Here's the book. Uh, it's very thick. I've read it. I'm rereading it. There's a PDF copy you can download for free, which we'll send a link to for those of you interested. LLF, as it's affectionately known, is designed to help us engage with actually a much longer journey of discernment that the Church of England has been on for a number of years already, asking again, what is the Spirit of God saying to us about these questions? What is our theology? What is our doctrine? What does that mean for us? A process that will come to an end in the next 18 months or so. The aim of the process, to be absolutely clear, is not to tell you what you should believe or to try to change your mind. It's to help us think carefully together as a people, to know what we think and why, and to understand what someone else might think and why, and to better listen to one another, and to better understand why we believe what we believe, so that we've got a chance to actually live together as one, even if we disagree. Now, before I explain a bit more practically, let me say a few things pastorally to us. And I have to be honest with you, I feel really vulnerable 
right now. So please be kind. I am acutely aware, we are acutely aware, that for some of us, this conversation is long overdue. And for others of us, it is deeply uncomfortable, something we wish we weren't going to do. What I'd say to you is please talk to us. Please talk to us. I'm acutely aware that within society and therefore within the church and therefore within this church, and let me tell you, like every local church, there is a spectrum of views, beliefs, convictions, experiences, pain and fear. And we need to be kind to one another. There are deeply held biblical convictions all along that spectrum about what is right and true, about what the scriptures teach and what the church's position should be. And I know, because I've talked to loads of you, for some of us, the prospect of dialogue and discussion around this is hard. For some of us, there isn't a conversation that needs to happen. They want me to make definitive pronouncements so we can just move on. But actually, I know that the call for us, if we're going to have any chance of genuinely holding together in love, is to humbly listen to one another and to learn together. Not just for ourselves, but actually for one another, and particularly for those who are perhaps younger than I am, who live in a world where this is really, really a big issue. Some of us here in All Saints, we hold to a traditional biblical teaching on marriage and sex. And some of us here in All Saints, we hold to a more progressive theology. Don't assume anything of one another. And please, be honest if you're not sure where you are. I'm really happy to talk to you about where I am on this, if that is helpful, but right today I'm not going to do that. I know from countless conversations that many of us would say we actually aren't fully sure. We're overwhelmed, it's complicated and confusing, and we really value the opportunity to talk and think and dialogue. And the win for me would be in all of this that actually we get to the place where we can explain with confidence and humility why we believe what we believe, which is perhaps a win for all of us. If I'm honest, I have procrastinated on this. And I've, I've done that because as I've talked to people, as I've read, as I've listened, as I've been to speak to bishops, as I've done all of this, I've found myself thinking, God, how best to do this? My heart, as our leader, ultimately, is that we engage in such a way that we're able to hold together in love. We can't avoid talking about it, and we mustn't. We don't need to. We don't need to be afraid. And the gift of LLF is it invites us to do that as part of a much bigger process, which will really help us. Each parish is being asked to engage with LLF in whichever way it thinks best. And Owen and I particularly, we've had lots of conversations, haven't we, about this over the years. Do we do the bare minimum, tick a box, say, yeah, we did something. But, you know, as I've prayed, as I've sat before God, as I've listened to people, particularly those who don't agree with me, I've realized that we have an opportunity in, in time, a, a responsibility in this time, actually, 
to do something far more robust and wholehearted by way of engagement. Recognizing that brings with it all sorts of implications and potential risks for us as a church. Practically, it means two things. One, you, to the extent to which you feel comfortable as an individual or a household unit, engaging with both the content of the book, there's a course, there's a whole load of other resources, as well as other stuff that we will collate and curate for you. So you think and engage. But also for us to do that corporately to the extent to which you want to as a church. All of the staff team and some of our ministry leaders will be doing this intentionally in the next few months. And in the autumn, we will make a number of options available to you for you to come and do that with other people, either on your own and then come and talk or to process extrovertly. Some of us need those workshop spaces, don't we? So we can do that. Let me be clear again, the aim is not to change one another's minds. It's to listen and to learn together. There will be no pressure on you to do that. But my hope is that together we'll step into the opportunity and do it well. There are six aims for LLF, and they're profound ones, I think. The, no, the first one is that we acknowledge our prejudice. The second is that we speak into silence. The third is that we address ignorance. The fourth is that we cast out fear. The fifth is that we admit hypocrisy. And the sixth is that we pay attention to power. Let me be really clear. Those six aims, they don't just pertain to this particular complicated issue, do they? These are six things that actually are really good checklists for us to have when we're dialoguing with anybody else about anything complicated. They apply to a whole lot of other issues as well. And those who've put this process together, they talk about two words. They have two words to describe how they want it to feel for us. They want it to be braver and safer. And I really like that. You and I, as the people of God, have nothing to fear. Perfect love casts out fear. So we can, if we choose to do it well, as Paul, and we'll come to this in a moment, maps out for us in a way that is healthy. We can bravely and safely have this conversation. I am determined that in wholeheartedly and openly engaging with this, we will not become divided, but actually that we'll become more of one mind than ever. That this could be something that the Lord uses to unite us in difference more profoundly, more beautifully, more truly than ever before, as we learn how to better share in God's love, even as we discover how to disagree well. But it will require humility on all our parts. It will require a generosity of spirit to make it safe for each other. We need to listen more than we talk. We need to ask the question, is it possible that I'm wrong? It will require a willingness as a church to accept that down the line, some policy and practice implications become inevitable. We're not there yet. And that's part of a national journey, which we'll have to track with. It will require a commitment on all our parts to a prophetic holding together in difference that witnesses to the world of God's love, grace, and mercy. 
Just let the uh, sirens go past. It's worth pointing out at this point, we actually already do a lot of this collectively as a church on other things. Not everyone in the church has the same views on women in leadership, for example. I believe that women are called to lead alongside men equally, but not everyone believes that. And you are in this church and you are welcome here. And we've learned to hold together on that. It's not divided us because I won't let it. There are people in this church who don't hold the same views that I have or on the role of the Holy Spirit, who I believe is active and engaging with us all the time. I'm a charismatic. Not everyone holds that view. And they're in this church and they're welcome. And we've not divided over that because I won't let us. And so the same applies here. The differences, of course, we're now having a conversation as part of a much bigger church conversation rather than just our own. So, to close, thank you for listening to that. Thank you in advance for your grace and your kindness. Please come and talk to me. Come and talk to Owen about any of this at any point. How do we do that? How do we do this holding together thing, really? Because I don't know about you, but it feels at times somewhat overwhelming, doesn't it? Not just on this issue, but collectively on a whole load of other issues. But Paul here in this passage believes it's really possible. He really does. For Paul, he says, it's all possible because of what we've already been given from God, which he talks about in verse 1. When we have, he says, the same love for one another that we have already experienced in God's love for us, we can be of one mind. So it starts with you and I making sure we are rooted and established in Christ for ourselves, knowing those truths of the gospel and then extending it into the lives of one another. That love, Paul, I think, would say is best expressed when we look at one another with the assumption that everybody else and their needs are more important than my own. That when I choose to love someone, even though I don't agree with what they think or how they live, because they're made in the image of God. This is, I think, the point of verses 3 through to 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. All of this is actually impossible, of course, unless Jesus is firmly at the centre, both of my life and your life and our life together. And that is where... The rest of this passage is so key. And if we had more time, we go through it verse by verse and we would see again the wonder of Jesus, not for today, sadly. But verse five is the key. We're to have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. The same way of seeing and acting because of who God is. Which then Paul describes in verses six through to 11. Jesus who being in very nature God does not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but makes himself nothing, humbles himself, goes to the cross to set us free. N.T. Wright in his commentary says simply what Paul is calling us to is a commitment to a self-giving love and self-sacrificing unity. That is how we hold together in love.
Jesus had to go to the cross. He had to pick his cross up and die on it so that this could be true. And that means, friends, we have to do the same. That is it right there, always is. Will we take up our cross in all of this for the sake of the unity of this church and the church so that we can bear witness to God in a world that is so in need, again, of his kindness and love and grace. Should we pray?